Welcome everyone to uh, Berkman Tuesday. Uh, we're delighted to see many uh, faces we've seen before. Some long-time Berkman people like Wendy Seltzer who come too infrequently. Delighted to see you. And, and also some new people to whom we welcome you to Berkman Tuesdays. Um, I'm John Palfrey. Uh, I work here at the Berkman Center. And um, sorry to say I'm double booked for lunch. So I just wanted to do a quick intro and then I'm sneaking out um, out the back. But uh, it seems um, uh, essential to me to at least um, welcome Dan Gilmore on his first official day as a Berkman Fellow. Um, we couldn't be happier at the arrangement that's been set up here whereby Dan is a fellow here and also um, at the uh, Berkeley School of Journalism, which he'll tell us much more about, I'm sure, during the course of this talk as he um, launches a, uh, an initiative on citizens media um, growing out of his many years as uh, probably the most respected tech reporter at San Jose Mercury News um, as the blogger and author of We the Media and really one of the founders of the citizen journalist movement in which many of us find ourselves uh, working day to day. Um, so it is from the, uh, the pen and the keyboard of Dan Gilmer that, that so much flows and we're delighted that, um, that you've come here to uh, play with us as a fellow and as you uh, launch into this new, new initiative. So thank you for being here. It's really, it's really great. Um, so I'm uh, maybe just send it uh, on its way and then I'm going to excuse myself. But um, ordinarily the mode is uh, to do a round of intros so everybody knows who everybody is in short form uh, and then come back around to the speaker who will hopefully during those intros have had time to eat his corned beef sandwich or whatever it is um, uh, and then talk for a super short period of time, five or ten minutes, um, reserving the balance for discussion, which I'm sure you'd have no problem with um, as a structural matter. So maybe uh, around to Bill McGovern. Uh, my name is Bill McGovern. I'm a fellow here at the center, uh, and my principal focus is on uh, copyright law in the educational sphere. Catherine Gracie, Berkman Center Program Administrator. Uh, Derek Bauer, Berkman Fellow. I work on the Internet Programming Center. Andy Orm, visiting from O'Reilly. Uh, Michael Rand, visiting from New York and the GPL3 conference, which is happening over at MIT. Bill Malone, I help run the clinical program here at the Berkman Center. Why don't we jump behind you, Phil, and make sure we get the folks around the back as well. Mm -hmm. uh, Mandy Nicole, communications coordinator. Uh, Eric Helwig, visiting. Uh, Hugh Stevenson, a uh, fellow this year on leave from the Federal Trade Commission. Ariel Silver, I work at the Berkman Center. Colin McBay, Managing Director of the Berkman Center. Susie Lindsay, I'm a fellow and I work on the Digital Media Project. Uh, Chris Dolan, a writer with Pitchfork Media. Terry Fisher, I'm the faculty and visiting professor at Brooklyn Law School. David Eisenberg, uh, I'm a fellow at the Berkman Center. My project is called Freedom to Connect and it focuses on um, uh, policy and technology at, at the lower layers of the internet. Ethan Zuckerman, fellow at the Berkman Center, work on the Global Voices Project and on citizens media in the developing world. Steve Garfield, I'm a video blogger and Boston correspondent for Rocket Boom. Colin Reinsman, staff assistant at Berkman Center. Uh, <coughs> Louis Vita, head geek, senior geek, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Eric Priest, I'm actually on the 
the second day as a resident dog or bird and snow. So. Well, I'm really thrilled to be here. I, to put it mildly, this One is our intro right there. Who are we missing? Oh, Dan Bricklin. <laughs> hey, Dan. Um, I'm. It, it's really just. It's an amazing thrill for me to be able to start putting all this together and to have this place be part of it. And I'm seeing some old friends and. Hope I'm making some new ones over the next few months and uh, that we can all do a lot of stuff together. Um, so I gather the format here is that I spend very little time talking initially and that we get into conversation mode as quickly as possible. And that sounds good to me. Um, what, what I'd like to do is tell you, those of you who don't, um, who don't know any particular thing about what I've been working on, uh, kind of where I'm coming from, and then spend a few minutes on where I hope to be going with this uh, Center for Citizen Media that's going to be jointly affiliated with uh, Berkman Center and uh, the Graduate School of Journalism at uh, Berkeley. Uh, it's uh, not a lot of moving parts, but I think we're going to be able to make it all work. So, as uh, JP said, I was a uh, newspaper journalist for a long time, the last 10 years of which were at the San Jose Mercury News in, uh, in the belly of the uh, technological beast, and uh, got to get a pretty first-hand view of how technology was shaping up. and. Uh, I learned something there really early that actually is what led me into the citizen media stuff in the first place. And what, what I learned from uh, these people who I was writing about and, and what they were working on was that in Silicon Valley, if you write about technology, the people reading what you write know a lot more than you do. And they do that by definition. And of course, even a decade ago, they had email and were uh, quick to tell me when they knew more than I did. And to, uh, to put it nicely, fill me in uh, on stuff I didn't know. And as a journalist, very traditional one, really, I, uh, that was daunting for a week or two. And then I realized it was fantastic. And then everything for me has really flowed from that moment. The idea that people who had been just an audience before were actually part of the process and a valuable part of the process, and that then as technology began to really develop in a uh, way where we could write on the web as well as just read from it, uh, when the web became more read-write as opposed to read-only, uh, and in, that was a the, the first major instance of that for most people, I think, was blogging around 1999, uh, where you could create your own website at a, uh, uh, in an easy way without having to know HTML. So again, that was another breakthrough. And uh, I, in, in the, about 2002, I did a uh, talk 
at the O'Reilly Emerging Tech Conference in uh, California that I called Journalism 3.0, uh, thinking that journalism itself was really changing in pretty profound ways. And that is what led into the book, We the Media, that uh, O'Reilly Media published, uh, and uh, which I should point out is under Creative Commons license and available free on the web. So uh, I don't know, Andy, if I'm supposed to say that in every talk I give, but I, I do anyway. I gather the paperback is coming out like this week or next week, so I, uh, I, hope, I hope that uh, that'll do some more. That um, doesn't seem to have hurt sales, that's all I know. And a year ago, I left the Mercury News to focus full time on the citizen media phenomenon and tried some experiments, uh, one of which was, is a site called Bayosphere. And in the last few months, uh, decided that I could get more done to move this, this uh, uh, phenomenon, this trend in, uh, it forward and in a direction that I think I would like to see it go uh, by creating a nonprofit center for citizen media, which is what I've done. And I want to just tell you briefly what I hope to do with that. Uh, I have three major areas that I'm planning to focus on, and part of what I'm here to do today and, and this week and then subsequent uh, visits and on the website and in other travels is to get uh, from other people what they think are the good ideas and to do again what I think we all need to do, which is to listen more. This is about changing media from lecture to conversation, and the first rule of conversation is like you have to listen, something that I think journalists are just starting to get. Uh, so the, the, the areas I'm going to focus on with the center are uh, in, in the three following buckets. First one is kind of standard think tankish sort of thing, which is uh, research, analysis, and advocacy, which is uh, to say, like, figure out what's happening and where it's going in the citizen media world with a focus, again, on journalism. And try and anticipate some of the problems that are going to be coming along as we move into this. Uh, we can already see some of them shaping up. Uh, try and anticipate them, try and maybe head them off or at least address them as, as we move ahead. Um, and, and then advocate for it. And, and my advocacy is pretty simple. I want to see it happen, but I want to see it happen in a really responsible and uh, useful way. Uh, I, I love all of the, the noise out on the net. I think it's wonderful that anyone can say anything. And a lot of that is, is very valuable noise. Uh, but I think we have to find ways to, to elevate the signal amid that noise to where people can find it and react to it and work with it. And then we have to also encourage people to do things that represent more signal than noise and to help create a trusted and trustworthy part of the, uh, the, this uh, media sphere that we're seeing bubble up from underneath. The second major area I'm looking at is uh, under the category, I think, of best practices, which is to say, find the good stuff that's going on uh, 
or surface it and uh, point to it, put together uh, a collection on the web probably of what's going on and help people find what's going on in a good way and help figure out why it's good or why it's not good. Uh, also collect best uh, tools along with best practices and have a really great conversation about all of that and s help people find good things. And I'm, I have some ideas on things we might do as part of that, but that's, uh, that's the basics. The third area is in the broad category of education and training. And uh, I, I, I do believe we need to help people understand how to be media literate or better media literate than they are in this new world where, uh, to my kind of amazement, people still tend to believe everything they read. And I, I don't want them to stop trusting some things, but I think we have to develop a different uh, kind of media literacy in this new world than the one we have. And one that will be analogous in some ways to media literacy in the traditional uh, sense, where people learn what the, by experience and by recommendation what they can trust and what they can't, or at least uh, how to be skeptical in a way that gets them good information in the end. Uh, and then training I'm thinking about uh, for for really anyone who wants to be part of this, including, and I'm very anxious to have this happen, more major media organizations, uh, though they're jumping into it at a pretty rapid rate. Uh, a lot of the moves that they're making strike me as kind of panicked ones as opposed to thoughtful ones. And it would, I, I hope that that's something that my center can work on too, is helping media organizations, which after all, I think are really important to keep around and to continue the good work that they do, uh, help them understand how to listen better and how to work better with the citizen uh, folks who want to be part of this. So that's the, the broad outline of where I'm going. And uh, as I said, I'm really right now mostly in, in a listening and learning mode, uh, learning in part because uh, I've never tried to run a nonprofit organization before, so I'm going to make lots of uh, extravagant mistakes there, but I hope to at least have my friends who have done it uh, help me avoid making those. And I'd, so I'd, I'll stop with that and just throw it open and, and uh, for comments and questions and ideas. Yes? Um, I have a lot of questions, so I'm, gonna, um, but I can, um, I'm wondering, with the media as we know it, often they, public media or public broadcasting traditional forms, uh, I guess I wonder if you think there's still a role for that, and if they often have a lot of trust associated with them, and if it's possible to leverage part of that trust, and if you're moving into a model that's more uh, discussion-oriented, or uh, as opposed to just pushing media at people, having to contribute, mm -hmm. uh, is there still a role for an editor or a curator in some sense? Uh, and if there is, is there a way to organize it, as opposed to just having chaos? Some um, as, as someone who doesn't particularly like chaos, um, although if, if you looked at my home office, you might think that was fanciful. Um, if, uh, editors are going to be really important in the future. 
Now, they may not be the same ones who are doing it today. Uh, it may be a combination of human and machine intelligence that we apply to that task, and I think it will be, uh, and as well as the people we call professional editors today who I think have a long future out of them. But sorting out the, uh, the flood of information in a way that's useful is essential. I don't know how we can have what the, I think the goal of journalism is, which is an informed citizenry, without doing that. Uh, does public, today's public media have a role? I, I think absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's where a lot of the most intelligent uh, journalism is going on right now. And I think there's a fairly high level of trust among the, the uh, listeners and viewers of public uh, broadcasting today, which I, you're talking about public broadcasting? Yeah, I, I, and I understand that there was a meeting in uh, Washington last week at which uh, this topic came up in a big way. I was hoping to get there but couldn't. And I would be, I, I think there's a great opportunity for public media to participate. I would note that Mark Glazer, who's a terrific journalist about all of these things, um, is starting, has started a job with PBS and his uh, blog called Media Shift, as in shifting media, is about to go live, I think, tomorrow, uh, where they're going to do a lot of this and talk about it. And I, knowing Mark, it's going to be pretty damn good and, and leading the way in, in a lot of what goes on. So uh, yes, the answer is uh, absolutely a role, and especially because there is a high level of trust already I think, in in what they do. Yes. I was wondering if you have any sense of how the blog movement and blogs in general are being used across borders internationally. And I guess I'm particularly interested in, let's say, Israel, but uh, I mean other countries as well. Well, I'm. Uh, I should defer to Ethan on that question. Uh, who is far more an expert on the international blogging scene. In fact, I, I think I really will defer to Ethan to, to, to address that because... Dan, I'm blogging your talk. I don't want to <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm sorry. Can you offer a, a brief response? I, I, he is the expert. <laughs> Incredibly nice of you to say. Um, I think what we're seeing is uh, blogging across international borders emerging as a really interesting way for people to talk back to sort of media perception of what's going on in their country. So what we're seeing through the Global Voices Project is lots and lots of people blogging very much with the explicit intent of challenging media representations of what's going on in their part of the world. And certainly that's something we see out of both the Israeli and the Palestinian blogosphere, is a lot of people saying, I'm writing explicitly because I don't like what I'm seeing in mainstream media about how we're being covered. Um, I think it's a really exciting 
time to sort of watch that happen. I think it's really interesting to watch people sort of stand up and say, I don't like this coverage and therefore I'm going to take it on. I also think we're starting to see as this gets more powerful, um, governments sort of responding to this in, in a way that's sometimes a, a very fearful response. And so I'm going to grab your question and then frame it into my question for Dan so that I can turn it around, which is to say, um, you're making reference to sort of citizens' media and in some ways uh, sort of identifying the best practices, educating and training to a certain extent. On the one hand, this is really exciting because I think there's a lot of bloggers who are sort of living in fear of their government sort of deciding that they are not being responsible journalists and therefore they're going to get closed down. At the same time, we sort of all know that the, the, the best way to make bloggers angry is to talk about training them, certifying them, somehow getting them up to some sort of acceptable standard. How, how are you going to balance that? How are you going to tell that line? Well, the, the first and the most important thing is that uh, I can't and wouldn't dream of forcing anyone uh, or even, uh, not that I couldn't do that if I tried. And secondly, I. Uh, it, the only people who uh, I want to have in, in any kind of you know, education or training are people who want to learn something new. Um, there's a lot of bloggers out there who are doing perfectly fine stuff, and not all blogging is journalism. Not all blogging should be journalism. In fact, to uh, recall some things that David Weinberger here has said, that, that Blogging is not in its uh, majority anything about journalism, nor should it be. So I, again, I'm, my focus is to some degree here going to be on the journalism part, because I think journalism matters in journal, and we need to do it really well. But I, I'm, you know, far be it for me to even dream of telling people they have to do it my way. I want to encourage everyone to do it their own way and help people know the differences. That would be a pretty good start. So maybe sort of accepting this idea that not everyone's going to do it that way. We wouldn't want everyone to do it that way. Um, what are the sort of key things, you know, let's take sort of hypotheticals from my part of the world. Um, Uganda's about to face an incredibly controversial election. There's a lot of active bloggers there. What do bloggers need to do? What are the sort of key things bloggers need to do to be taken seriously by the international journalism community sort of reporting and commenting on that situation? Um, well, I think it, in a sense it's more important that they be taken seriously by their fellow countrymen. Um, than by international journalists. And I, to the extent that they're doing something that we might call journalism, I would hope they would adopt some of the principles that have, that we've learned in journalism over several centuries that are, I think, hold up pretty well, like thoroughness and accuracy and fairness um, and and add to that some transparency, which has not been a particular principle of journalism except for everyone else. <laughs> um, 
and uh, and and then another one which might be uh, it's getting harder to do in some level, and that's independence of the the people or institutions one might be writing about. Uh, and if, it, if not independent, then absolute transparency about what's going on, about the role. It seems to me that's a good start. And that a blogger who does things in that kind of way is likely to, I hope, be recognized as more credible than someone who is stating nothing but opinions without a lot of facts behind them. Uh, I, I, I think we always need to assume that readers and, and listeners, et cetera, are fairly smart, not necessarily that they know a lot about the process or about the issue at hand. And, and by the way, when we say blogging, I, I want to kind of think of blogging as a proxy word for all of the new things going on uh, that are part of the, the web that we write on or publish on. So th when, you th when I say blogs, let's think about podcasts. Let's think about video uh, blogging or whatever we call that now. Uh, and and, and mashups of various kinds of uh, databases that exist on the web and in, into new forms. But the idea of uh, creating things on the web that then uh, are either part of or spawn conversations, to me that's, that's what this is all about and where blogging was the first serious instance of it, but uh, only the beginning of where this is all going to go. In the back. Um, I, I'm sort of revolving a couple of different things that seem to be converging in my mind. Uh, I'm interested in your thoughts on it. Um, I, because I work a lot with nonprofits and philanthropies on their internet strategies, you know, one of the memes that I've been working on, and some of the folks in this room know that I've had conversations with them about it, is this whole idea is that not only is the net the second superpower, but the net is the um, the second social welfare delivery system, which we really saw in the wake of the hurricanes uh, and you know that went up uh, the coast this uh, fall, and so. I'm thinking in my mind there's a kind of possible convergence here. You have more, um, more citizen journalism and maybe a good sort of self-perpetuating relationship between that and general civic engagement, and then maybe as a result, more engagement of everybody in, say, the social welfare delivery system. I'm using welfare in a very broad sort of social worker way. Do you see any interesting um, Convergences or uh, synergies going on there? Odd that you mentioned that, and this is not a setup question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in starting next month, I'm going to do a series of talks that I hope uh, that that I'm visualizing right now as an outline for a new book that I'm working on, and it it's all about. Um, in the end, it's about a hypothesis that I have that I'm, uh, that I, I believe to be true, I'm, I'm, but I'm still looking, still gathering data. Um, and the, what I believe to be the case is that the more that people become engaged with current events, starting at the most modest level, 
uh, not being a couch potato, but, but getting a better news report by assembling it from a variety of sources. That's the first step. Um, and we, this is part of this uh, things that I've been working on. But going from there to maybe engaging with the professional journalists, uh, whether it's a note in the email or beyond that, or participating in a discussion group, or, and it's, but that's a higher level of engagement. Going, and uh, fewer numbers, but higher level. And then, then go up to another level, again, where by the, the, the numbers drop in terms of participation, but the engagement grows, and that's the people who start doing it themselves. The bloggers, the uh, people who set up their own community sites, et cetera. And I include in that, by the way, uh, groups that are advocating for issues. And so that continuum of engagement getting sort of larger numbers, uh, less of a uh, direct engagement, smaller numbers, and more deep engagement with current events to the point of uh, in, in quoting Scoop Nisker, who said, if you don't like the news, go out and make some of your own. Uh, so at, at that level where they are, be, they become the journalist. My, my, my conviction on this is that people who go on that trajectory uh, become activists in some very direct way, and that they are likely to become activists in, in a very good way by engaging with the news and each other and the, and the, the citizenry as a whole. And I'm actually, uh, you know, my politics are probably more, to, certainly more to the left on most issues than, on, than to the right, though they're quite far to the right on some issues. But I'm interested in seeing this happen by everybody who wants to who wants to play and be part of this, and that the more engagement we have with the world uh, by engaging with news and and telling each other what's going on, the more informed we will be as citizens and the better off we'll be as a country. That's a hypothesis. I, I but that I believe to be true, and I'm going to probably break scientific rules by looking for data that supports it, but I'm, uh, I'm also looking for data that proves it wrong. And uh, I, I'm, this, this is what I'm really fascinated by right now, and I, so the answer to your question is I really hope so. Uh, David. Um, in the history of journalism, um, back in the 50s, TV came along. And all of a sudden, uh, newspapers, um, well, actually, it, it did take a while, didn't it? Lose newspapers lost their intensity, lost readership. People started saying they got their news from the TV more. And then, um, of course, TV kind of, and a lot, the, the, a lot of the journalistic <coughs> ethic went out of television. Um, and. I see, but but the but people still watch it, and Al Gore at least has um, started a TV effort uh, to do televised <coughs> journalism on the web. I haven't heard you 
making, maybe I haven't been listening enough, but I, could you make some comments, and I'll listen this time, uh, about um, uh, the possibility that there might be a new reemergence of um, video news and what it might mean for society? The, the, uh, the current TV, which is what the project you're describing uh, that you'd mentioned, that was, uh, it's being run by a guy named Joel Hyatt, uh, who uh, was the founder of the Hyatt Legal Services Company and a, a, an entrepreneur of some note. Um, and Gore is on his board and I think, uh, you know, senior in, in the thing. Um, I think it's pretty interesting. They're inviting a lot of, uh, they're inviting people out in the community to contribute video that they're doing themselves. I've, I have some issues with their terms of service, which strike me as uh, draconian and, and not very friendly, really, to the people who are doing all that work. Um, but I think that'll be worked out over time. And meanwhile, we have things like Rocket Boom, which is uh, doing a daily show with very little uh, money, and it's, it's terrific in its own way. And video is on the cusp of, I think, getting really interesting, uh, again, in ways that it hasn't been in a long time. That said, uh, and this is also a, an issue with podcasting, um, I think it's harder to create uh, an audio production that lots and lots of people will want to listen to than it is to write a decent blog posting. Um, we, th now that's not necessarily true of people growing up today for whom this is all second nature. I think it's an order of magnitude harder to do a good video than a good podcast, at least. Um, and the other thing is that video, that broadcasting or casting, however we're going to call it, that it's more linear than text, which we can scan and, and, and do a lot with in a short period of time. So it's a very different medium. But the experiments are all over the place now, and they're really early. And the, the, the tools of video creation are uh, surprisingly sophisticated uh, and inexpensive and only getting better. So I, I think it's pretty early to say that we're on the, on the cusp of a, of a revolution in video journalism, but I certainly expect we're going to see fantastic stuff coming along just because people have things to say. Uh, but I noticed that you, when you talk about journalism, it's almost most always about um, you know, words on paper, or me metaphorical paper. Well, it's, it's the journalism I've done most of my life, but I, I did say a few minutes ago that I think of blogs as a proxy word for all of the other media that are coming along and that uh, the uh, people who will do the real inventing here are half my age or younger. Uh, the, and I think I, I've said this before and I do believe this, that the, the, the people who really figure out the news of tomorrow are, you know, like eight years old today and living in Helsinki and Seoul, 
uh, and other highly connected places where it's completely second nature. Um, and the U.S., there may be some in the U.S. who will figure that out, but I have to say, given our shabby state of telecommunications, uh, we may actually trail the world when it comes to doing this stuff uh, unless we get our act together on that score. But it, it, it's going to be people who, who, who are native to that world, and I'm not. So I'm, I'm, I'm learning from them. Yes, you, you and then you. Um, so a number of us in Berkman space have had an ongoing conversation about the place for anonymous and pseudonymous speech in online world. And you're talking a lot about sort of the norms in this citizen media space. But you're saying things, it seems like, that could push in both directions. On the one hand, you're talking about wide participation. And certainly, the availability of anonymity might help support that, particularly in, in other countries where there's you know, real dangers of repression if you're identified as a speaker. On the other hand, though, you're also talking about the virtues and the importance of transparency. So I, I just wonder what, how you think about uh, people who are coming to the table in the conversation without using their real names. Uh, it's a, that's a really important issue, and uh, we need to have, we, we need to look at it from many different perspectives uh, because there won't be one answer that fits. Uh, I, at, at a meeting in Madrid that I attended last year uh, with several people here, we talked about anonymity and uh, concluded that it, you know, technically it would be hard to stamp out, but that we wanted to preserve it uh, for the situations where people's lives uh, or, uh, you know, where there was serious risk involved in telling the truth. Um, and, and I would be horrified if there were an attempt to, to end anonymity in some uh, governmental way. Uh, that said, I do believe that journalism in general is uh, a better process when people stand behind their words. And that uh, conversation is uh, better when people are, uh, maybe they're being pseudonymous, but not entirely anonymous. And I, Phil and I talked about this a bit this morning. I, I have my own, I've been, I've been thinking of it in kind of like, imagine a trustometer um, where, that, that, let's just say it starts off from minus 10 to 10. And I, I, an anonymous posting. I would assign it at, at the outset minus 10, just, just on principle that if this person can't stand behind what he or she says, I'm not going to believe it as a matter of course unless that person over time under a pseudonym begins to show me that there's some reason to be trusting what's being said. Whereas someone who starts off with a real name pointing to like his or her own website uh, in an online conversation, I'll start off on the trustometer at plus 10, where, where perhaps this person can, not perhaps, but certainly very possible, could, could lose points over time by not being, uh, by, by showing inaccuracy or, or other problems, but that it's part of the, uh, the, the relearning of media literacy, I think that we, have to do in this this new world is to 
really think about things that people don't stand behind with their own names, we have to think about, okay, why are they not standing behind it? If it's, if it's clearly someone taking a risk with, with you know, uh, a survival risk or, or loss of employment or, uh, or, or some, some horrible, you know, bad action against them, at least that's something to factor in. It may not, I don't think it automatically makes it believable. I'd still have to say, well, you know, got to prove it. I want to see, I want to see the facts. But someone posting in an online forum without using a, a real name where there's obviously no risk, I, I just sort of, my eyes just sort of skip past a lot of those because I just think we need to be uh, recognizing that while we own our own words, that ownership brings some responsibility with it in, in a general way. But again, there are going to be the cases where anonymity is not only required, but it's going to be uh, a provably good thing. And we, we have to adjust our expectations for the situation. So. I was going to ask a question about anonymity as well, but um, I've come up with another one since then. Um, <laughs> I wonder what you thought of sites like uh, dig.com, which is kind of like a citizen editing, you know, where you're <laughs> ranking stories based on, um, on various uh, components. And, Kind of, it's somewhat in a kind of a Wikipedia model, but I just kind of want to see what you think that kind of role is in citizen journalism. Oh, I, th I think all of the things like Dig are, are great experiments, and uh, we're we're pretty early in the uh, the management of of uh, recommendation systems and reputation systems, things like that. And I'm you know hoping that some of the people here in this room are are going to be among those who help really make this work well, because right now, these are still pretty crude. Uh, it seems a way that you could, you could also maintain some kind of pseudo-anonymity with having community kind of ranking. Yeah, if, it's certainly a metric of, it, there's a metric one can use that says, if, if all of these people think that what this person is posting is, is good stuff, um, that's worth knowing. It doesn't mean that what they're posting is true. It just means that it's popular or that it's gotten some uh, waiting. I'd, however, if, if, if Dan Bricklin sitting next to you says, I like this pseudonymous person's postings, um, wow, I'll give that a significantly higher rating than if someone I don't know does that or, or someone who I know, who I don't have such, you know, admiration for as I do for Dan. So it's a, we're going to have, you know, I don't know, I don't have the clue how to do that with machines and how to, that, that's a, some of that's a software problem. But I, I assume that really smart people, and I know some who are starting to work on these things are going to do it. The uh, getting so, so combining machine intelligence and human intelligence strikes me as a really good approach. We need another thing that uh, would, I think another thing we could add to that, again, I, I don't know how to mash these things up in any real world way, but there's a project going on uh, or starting up in California called News Trust to get people to like rate articles from major media on, a, on a bunch of different parameters, including 
uh, accuracy if they know something about the subject and uh, sourcing, whether it's you know, well-sourced and these things, to build up over time a, a database of what uh, bylines one might want to pay attention, more attention to, and what organizations one might pay more attention to. Um, and that can plainly be extended to bloggers or to videos or to other things. And, and uh, I think mediachannel.org is working on something with uh, news programming to start uh, rating some of that. I, I'd, I'd only heard about that secondhand, but I think that's we're in the work. So this is going to be such fertile territory for people for some time to come. Dan. Uh, back to what you were saying about people saying things in their own name. Um, with podcasting and feed watching and what you've written and all the stuff, where basically anything you do anywhere where anybody else is around, plus anything you think when you're in your bedroom or something, you decide to type it, is now available uh, retroactively. Every bad joke you've made uh, and you're being misunderstood without context or everything is available. In today's world, we seem to be less forgiving than we used to, except for maybe uh, driving offenses many years ago, if you, you know, or maybe if you didn't inhale or something like that. But we're starting to accept some of that. But you see a change where people will accept the humanness of people, or how, and, and the press, the journalists especially, who are the gotchas. Right. How, that whole area. Um. Someday, in the relatively near future, and I say relatively, uh, we're going to elect a president who had a blog when she was a teenager. And it's, that blog will still be out there. It will be full of things that no politician attempting election to any office today, except maybe in Cambridge or in Berkeley, uh, would, would, would find anything but a disaster to the process. As, as you're pointing out, we're, we're moving into an era that troubles me in many ways, where uh, Unfortunately, unless it's literally with, with our, the people we are very close to and trust completely, where everything we say is going to be in some sense on the record, uh, that, that to me is a really awful world. And we have two things we're going to need to do. One is we're going to, we need to damn well grant each other zones of privacy uh, of, in the uh, context of David Brin's great book, uh, The Transparent Society, where he talked about some of that. I mean, we're going to have to just do that. People in Japan give each other a zone of privacy in a way that U.S. people don't, yeah, because of the crowding. The, um, yet it's very, there's, there is no privacy in some level. Um, and the other thing is that we're going to have to, uh, and I think we will, when, when, when everyone virtually has said something unbelievably stupid for the public record or done something embarrassing, and we all have done both. Uh, when, it's, when everyone is, in, in today's context, at risk, 
Now, we're going to have to cut each other a lot of slack, and that's good. I think that, but we're going to have to wait a while before that happens, and I'm afraid we're going to have a real messy interim where, where Gotcha uh, gets a lot of people uh, who a generation from now will look back and say, what? that wasn't even interesting. You know, uh, Douglas Ginsburg smoked some joints in college, couldn't get on the Supreme Court. Well, I don't think smoking a few joints in college is enough to disqualify anybody for any office now. Uh, I, think, I think we've actually come a bit of, you know, a bit in the right direction. So, you know, I think we'll get to something we can live, live with together, but not before a lot of trouble in the meantime. Yes? So even if there is a person who puts what you think is a real name, and even if it does point to a website, you still don't know if it's real at all. It still comes back that somebody you know knows somebody who knows him. Right. I, I, I guess I, I wasn't quite being clear. Um, the fact of having a website doesn't make someone any more credible uh, in, in a large sense, though a website where, where the, the, the owner of the site is effect effectively traceable, uh, you know, means that, and, and of course there are people who are now figuring out ways to do truly anonymous websites, but that's a, uh, again, the same problem would apply. I'm just saying that the first step of that particular kind of accountability and a useful one is to say this is me and if it's not you'll be if, if you're you posting under someone else's name and that person finds out it you'll 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 hear about it um, I'm just saying it's a continuum and we it I think a, a real a real name pointing to a site that is not counterfeit uh, or, or I'm not sure if that's the right word, but that's not a fake. That, I think on the continuum of trust, it's higher than the entirely anonymous posting. And you know, higher yet on the trust is someone who has a track record and has shown uh, shown that, that, that he or she is being uh, accountable for, for what's uh, said or, or uh, put up on the site. Yes, uh, who, let me get someone who hasn't asked a question, Wendy. Uh, sure, to, to follow up on this very interesting conversation, do you think that trust has you know, different segments and do we have tools yet uh, to allow people to segment trust? So I might trust somebody's political commentary but not uh, the factual assertions he makes and I might trust somebody else's restaurant recommendations, but not political views. I, I, if we have those tools, someone should tell me about them. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm anxious to start using them. I mean, I, I would like, for example, uh, let's pick, let's take the subject of anonymity. There, uh, if uh, 
I, I would like to know what, for example, you write about that or say about that and any three people you recommend and, and, and then make a list of them on that subject, uh, maybe not on other subjects. So there's a tool that would be useful. Um, and then have an RSS feed that would do that. Uh, I don't know that being available right now. Um, so there's just as maybe we'll have different uh, uh, pseudonymous personas for various parts of our lives. I mean, I'm, I'm a somewhat different person here than I am at home. I mean, we, I, th these are, this is a different group. Uh, and we are, we all live different parts of our lives. The, so, so the eBay reputation that one has is a different reputation than one might have in a restaurant review situation. Uh, though I, I keep hoping eBay will let people make their reputations portable because it's, it's a decent first cut of a proxy toward some element of trust. I'd like to be able to do things with it. Anyway, the answer is no, we yeah. need, and we really need those tools. <laughs> yeah, that, that's where I come out. I'll admit it was less a question than an <laughs> attempt to, to bring that up, because as someone who's concerned both with accountability and anonymity, mm -hmm. uh, I think if we end up collapsing too many pieces of trust into a single identity, mm. we lose the options yeah, of privacy will, and of starting new. Th this will be a many-layered and uh, nuanced uh, area for a, a long time. David? Um, a response and, and a question um, or following us. Uh, <clears throat> this is subject, what Wendy just said, is such a good argument for supporting pseudonymity rather than, than um, requiring actual identities because it pseudonyms allow us to do that, exactly that sort of segmentation, um, as well as having some other benefits. Um, but the question is, um, towards the beginning of the hour, you said that uh, something like editors have a long path ahead of them, they're going to be here for a long time. Um, who's going to pay them? And is your center going to be considering that? <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> That was a briefer question than I anticipated. <laughs> <laughs> for Perhaps anyone. You could, for the theoretical. <laughs> 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 Putting that in terms of phenomenology. Why do you get paid? The, all right. Um, yeah, that's one, of, that's one of topic, the topic A type questions we are going to have to deal with. Um, and the, the most of you probably know this, but I'll just sort of quickly offer the background of what the question gets to, which is that the the threat to mass media of today, and mass can mean uh, a 10,000 circulation newspaper that's the only daily paper in a small town. So I, I use mass as a me meaning dominant media of today, or, or a local TV station that has the only news show. Um, mass media are, the, are, I don't believe, threatened in any serious way journalistically by bloggers because journalists are pretty competitive and really respond well to, to competition, I think, in, in, on balance. And I think 
if there's more competition journalistically, we'll get better journalism. That, that's not always true. Sometimes we just get more competition for uh, the, the, the minutiae of a criminal trial that, that no one should care about. Um, the, 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 most, the serious threat to journalism, mass journalism today, is the business side threat. It's the fact that uh, you know, for newspapers, the, uh, the real cash cow for a long time, at least local papers, has been classified advertising, and uh, it didn't dawn on newspapers till a few years ago that the largest classified advertising operation on the planet was otherwise known as eBay, that calls itself auctions, but it's classified ads, and was taking massive amounts from there, and now Monster.com, Craigslist, a bunch of other things. And, and in each case, the attack on the business, the revenue streams of mass media uh, is coming from organizations that are uh, well-capitalized, uh, nimble, which is to say able to move really fast where mass media, traditional media, are uh, among the slowest moving creatures on the planet, and uh, uh, hungry and innovative. And then this is key. They're, these are also organizations for which doing journalism would be a kind of ridiculous distraction from the business, as opposed to the journalism organizations where that's in theory the the primary point. Uh, that's hard to compete with. TiVo is hard to compete with when uh, we, we don't have a TiVo, we have something like it, and there's a button on the little, on the remote that makes 30 seconds disappear. And we don't watch much live TV, and what TV we do watch that's from commercial stations, those 30 seconds just keep disappearing. Uh, you know, I'm sorry about that, but for the business folks, but that's life. So there's this big, big threat on the business side. And David wants to know how we're going to pay journalists. Uh, me too. Uh, but I said 15% of the gross. Um, well, there, but there's, there's going to be, there, there are a number of issues in, in there. One of those one thing big media still do really well is investigative journalism. Uh, it takes deep pockets, serious commitment, uh, the ability to ward off uh, powerful people and organizations who will throw uh, legions of lawyers at you in an attempt to shut you up uh, or punish you for having told truth to power or about power. and. Uh, I think it's, it, would, it would be a mistake, I think, for us to try and to assume that the judgment-proof blogger is going to somehow replace that. I, I just don't see that being the way it would work. And perhaps it will be foundations who pay some of the investigative folks. The Center for Public Integrity does uh, clearly some of the best investigative reporting in the world today, and they're supported largely by foundations. Uh, I, I don't think that's enough. I think if we, we have to find business models to support these things, but they're not going to be exactly the same ones we have today. But 
the business of big media today has been a kind of, uh, it's, it's been based on a half century or more of uh, consolidation into monopoly or, or oligopoly type positions in the market where fat margins were uh, not only possible but almost impossible to avoid. I mean, if you ran a local TV station in most markets, network TV station, you couldn't lose money if you tried. And, and the newspaper, the daily paper that's the monopoly in most markets is still highly profitable. It's not a monopoly the way it was, but it's still the only big daily in, in, typically. Uh, so that just can't be sustained. And I do worry that the public, uh, the, the public trust function of journalism, paying the people to go out and report and edit and, and design and do all the things that, uh, and, and broadcast these, you know, terrific detailed in-depth things, we, we, we're going to lose some of it. I, I think there will be enough, there will be a business to support some journalism, whether, whether we get through this interim with uh, a lot more good stuff disappearing than appearing. I don't know. I just don't know the answer to that. But business models are being worked on, and people will come up with some. With it. But I just I don't have a I have no clarity at all in my mind whether it'll come out the way I want. But I hope for an ecosystem that includes big and everything uh, down in in a you know in a cooperative some com competing and cooperative sense where we all work some things out together. Uh, it's one of the things I'm working on. I think we need to wrap this up, so maybe just two last quick questions. Um, does someone who hasn't asked a question want to ask rather than me? Because I have a mean, nasty question, but I'll go ahead. And, <laughs> and then I know Dan will be around afterwards, so it doesn't have to end the discussion, yeah, but just to allow people to leave, to leave. You have, there was, I have a question from, uh, from the IRC chat room, actually. Um, I was surprised Eisen didn't ask it, actually, but uh, the, the question uh, was, oh, whoops. Now I lost it. Oh, what are the concerns to citizen media over proposals from Bell South, SBC, etc., to alter what has traditionally been known as network neutrality online? Dave, are you in the IRC also? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, no, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll second the question. In non persistence. Um, it, it's a, uh, it's horrendous. We're, we're heading toward a media consolidation of a different kind that will make what we've all been talking about as media consolidation uh, look pretty tame by comparison. Uh, the, the idea that a, a duopoly can not only uh, charge what it wants for access to the pipes, but then decide what gets delivered uh, on the pipes and in what order. And not only can, but demands the right to do that and is, is pushing ahead to do that. Uh, that's, that, that's a real threat to not just citizen media, but to, I think, to the democracy itself. I mean, I think this is really bad things going on, and we better get people to start focusing on it. But um, 
right now the people in charge of these things are not only uh, I mean, they're, they're you know they, they kind of talk a good game here and there but uh, you know why did Michael Powell wait till he was out of office to say this is unacceptable <laughs> as, as one of his former uh, top staff people said after he said network you know the FCC will will never allow this uh, to happen so, uh, one of his former top people said uh, the the powers of an ex FCC chairman are limited so the, the answer is that if, if this goes the way it's going and gets there, we're screwed. And I mean, I'm, my hope is on wireless to somehow save us all, but that's a, that's a, that's a fairly thin read of hope uh, because I'm not convinced it will. And besides, these guys are buying up all the backbones, too. I mean, before we're done, they'll own all the dark fiber, not just the, the lit fiber. Um, so, Ethan, what was your mean question? We'll do that uh, afterwards. I'll, I, I, I promise here. I, I promise to blog whatever Ethan asks me with with my response. <laughs> I, if we're going to set it up like that, I'll ask. Um, <laughs> what we've seen with the sort of rise of local media, the power of these lo local media monopolies, is this weird form of journalism which basically says, "I'm going to make this important to you." And suddenly the idea that someone found salmonella in the deli down the street is more important than, you know, um, genocide in Rwanda. Um, all news has to be relevant. It has to be connected to your daily life. In this medium that we're talking about, there seems like there's a real bias towards certain types of stories, particularly tech stories, science stories, and American politics stories. We can go into the numbers on it. As citizens' media becomes more important, as folks like you sort of go out and embrace it, do we sort of run the risk of having this sort of massive media distortion, the same way we have this sort of highly local news distortion? Hmm. Do we sort of run the risk that suddenly we're all going to be tremendously well informed about the intricacies of the open document standard in Massachusetts, but we're still going to be really shittily informed about what's going on in the Democratic Republican Party? Um. Sort of, but not the way I, th I don't think the way you're describing it is what is the likely if this happens. I think we'll be, I, I think as this proceeds, we'll be uh, massively well informed about that which we personally care about. Uh, not necessarily what other people in the masses care about. Um, my worry on that in that context is what some folks have called the echo chamber effect, uh, which is the the only listening to things we are prone to agree with. Um, in this case, I extend that to the only things the only things that we care about right now, and and unfortunately, that in most places doesn't isn't likely to include what's going on in, in Rwanda. Um, but. Going back to the idea of deeper engagement with current events, and if, if this process does start developing that, um, I think we have a chance of 
some more of some broadening in ways that are uh, not necessarily intuitive. And there was a study after the election, uh, the 2004 election, that said people who relied on uh, online media for a substantial amount of information they were getting about the candidates and the uh, and the positions, uh, while they were typically quite partisan and had already kind of made up their minds. They actually knew more about what the other side thought and was advocating than people who were not relying in some large part on the online media. So uh, maybe there's going to be more exposure to things we don't expect, but I, I want to institutionalize somehow uh, the idea that, that, we, that we learn about things we didn't know were important <coughs> until we, we were pointed to by people, and I think there's going to be a lot of that anyway. And, and I'm also completely uh, sure that we need to reinstitutionalize serendipity. <laughs> that the and, and actually, I, I have serendipity in, in, the, in the newspaper context is the uh, story on the lower right-hand side of the, the page below the fold about something you had no idea about that's kind of featureish, but you read it and you say, huh, that was interesting. Because some, some editor with a weirdly warped sense of the absurd put it there. Uh, or, or someone said, you, damn it, people need to hear about that. Uh, I, I, serendipity for me online today is things like Boing Boing, which, uh, you know, I, I had no idea I cared about most of the things I read on Boing Boing. <laughs> and, and actually, I don't care about most of them, but I, I, I do care about a surprising number of things I see on Boing Boing, even if they kind of glance off my brain on, uh, on the way down the page. Uh, that's kind of thing. We, we just got to, I think we have to seek it out more so in this I, world. I, but. I'm planning street riots in the near future where people are going to raise their fists in the air and shout, reinstitutionalize serendipity. <laughs> <laughs> just so you know, it's just something, something to expect in the near so, future. So, so we need, we, we, uh, I, I think we need, uh, we need a better slogan, I think. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think that one may be on Cafe Press, you know, coffee books. Yeah, that'll that'll in that'll. Fact, I think I can promise you that that one's going to be on, on Press. Only in college towns, right? That's it. So, please join me in thanking Dan. Thank you all. This is really fun. <laughs>